this morning as we try to answer that question, who are we? It's kind of an age-old question of identity and worth and value and purpose and who, who am I and what am I here to do? We're going to look to this letter that a guy named Paul wrote a long time ago, thousands of years ago, to a church in the city of Corinth. And we're just going to look at one section of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 17 through verse 21. That's the end of the chapter. And Paul wrote this. He had been writing to them about this uh, ministry of reconciliation, how God has been working to reconcile all people to himself. And in verse 17, he says, therefore, and his therefore is like, because of God's reconciliation, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. Father, we pray that you would open up our hearts, our minds, our ears, our, our souls to receive your address to us today. God, you are speaking to us this morning just as you were speaking through Paul to the church in Corinth so many years ago. And so, Spirit, may we hear your words, may we be transformed by your words, and may we be empowered by your words. May we live as if these words are true because we know that they are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was 17 and I was... In my senior year of high school, February of that year, I sat in one of the tunnels of the Coliseum in downtown Phoenix, the Arizona Memorial Coliseum, bawling my eyes out. And my wrestling coach had entered into the tunnel after I had lost the last match that kept me out of the state finals. And he came up to me and he said, hey, it's okay, I love you for who you are, not for what you do. And then he had to go coach another match. And I sat there thinking that doesn't make any sense at all. Because if I had beaten that guy, I would be a state finalist, right? If I had worked a little bit harder, then I would be maybe even a state champion. Uh, and I have so many friends now who I knew back then, who did achieve that. And it's taken me a long time to realize, like, it hasn't changed their identity one bit. I mean, I'm a 35-year-old man now, and I'm finally getting this, right? It sounds silly to say as a 35-year-old man now that I was crying my eyes out over losing a wrestling match in high school. But what you got to understand is at that time, I had spent the last four years building my identity around this thing. 
trying to, to make something of myself because it was something that I found I was, I was finally good at and that maybe I, I could actually get attention from people for. Uh, my, my dad was proud of me when I performed well doing that. Other people would applaud. And so I was building an identity around this thing and I felt like I had just lost it all on that mat. And as I said, there, there, I watched some of my friends go on and they meddled and some of them took first even. But here we are, it's you know, 20 years later and does that really mean anything? Does it make a difference? You know, one of them's driving for FedEx right now, but he's got his state medal. And that, for me in that moment, was the most important thing. That was my identity. And so what we're talking about this month is when we start on the wrong end of things, when we start backwards and we look at what we do and we try to build our identity around that, we get so mixed up in life. And even from there, what we start to do is we start to answer the question, what has God done for me? And, and who is God? Based off of our experiences and how we're living and the actions that we're taking now. And we gotta turn that around because it doesn't start with us. It doesn't even end with us. We start with who is this God, which we did a couple weeks ago. What has he done the power and the purpose of his work in and through Jesus specifically, and now who has he made us to be? And even when we get to answer the question, how do we live in light of that, we still remind ourselves, we go all the way back to the beginning, and remember, we can only do this because of who God is. Because he's a God who hasn't left us. And it's actually even, you know, a lot of times we talk about like things that we're gonna do for God. That's starting from this misunderstanding. We don't do things for God. God does things through us, right? It's his spirit at work within us. And I want, I want us, I'm praying that this morning and for the days and years to come that we would try to heal ourselves from this lie that we have to perform for God or for others or for ourselves. But that God has done all the work necessary to give you a new identity and that God is still at work in and through you by the power of his spirit that anything good you are called to do that you can actually do that you have actually done has always been through the power of the spirit because anything good comes from the father does that make sense I was watching this movie this is one of my favorite uh, Disney Pixar animated movies was the uh, Monsters University. You know, the Monsters, Inc. movie came out first and then they did a prequel to it. And it it's a good movie in and of itself, but one of the reasons I love it is because of a little exchange, the dialogue that takes place at the end of the movie. Spoiler is coming. Sorry, you guys. Like, if you haven't seen the movie, it's been out for a while. Uh, but the whole time... Mike Wazowski, this little green tennis ball-looking monster, uh, has been training his whole life to be one of the top scares of all the monsters because they, they scare children to get energy to keep their city running. It's really kind of a terrifying premise for a kid's movie. 
but he's working so hard to be the top scare, and he studies the hardest, and he trains the hardest, and he is focused like no one else. And in any other movie in our culture, you would think like, yeah, the, the end of the story is like, he has worked hard enough to make a name for himself. He is going to accomplish this thing against all odds. What a beautiful story, right? No one thought he could do it, and he proved them all wrong, and that's not how the movie ends. It was like one of the most realistic Hollywood scenes I've ever seen. And it was an animated movie of this little green tennis ball monster. And he's sitting there sulking at the end because he realized he had failed, or so he thought. And the big, scary monster who doesn't try at all to be scary and goose off uh, through everything is just naturally great at it. Mike Sullivan, he comes over and he sits next to him and they become friends now. By the end of the movie, and uh, he has to, like, they have a heart-to-heart. He has to be honest with him. He has to just tell him, you're just not scary. But I thought I could be and do whatever I want as long as I try hard enough, right? Like, you're just not. That's just not who you are. And what I loved about the movie is then that sets him on this course of trying to figure out, well, who is he and what is he good at? And how does he live in that role to the best of his ability? I want to read a children's story to you guys right now, since we're on children's stories. I'm not going to build anything for you today up here, or attempt to, um, but I will read a, a children's story to you. It's a short story, and it's a story about a bunny rabbit. You guys like bunnies? Cute little fluffy bunnies? Did I hear someone say no? <laughs> Man, who doesn't like bunnies? Speaking of monsters, okay. The rabbit was once captivated by the idea of flight. He saw the birds glide freely through the clouds, seemingly able to perch on the sun, at least from his perspective. He also heard the empowering advice of the slithering sage. You can be and do whatever you want if you want it enough. At the same time, he was encouraged by his own ability to leap with great height off the ground yet confined by the inevitable might of gravity, which would pull him down. He would jump just high enough to give him hope that the words were true. You can be and do whatever you want if you want it enough. Reach for the sun, soar among the clouds, for you too can take flight with the winged creatures. And this was his prison. He would leap day and night with all his might and feel the exhilaration of the wind beneath his feet only to feel the despair of being pulled back down to the ground. Then he would think, just a little higher. Maybe this next time. Maybe if I work harder. But every time he would get pulled back down by some unseen, invisible force. One day the owl saw the rabbit. You do not look very happy at all, said the owl. Of course I'm not, said the rabbit. I'm doing all that I can, and yet I'll never be like you or the birds. I just can't seem to reach my potential to fly. You poor thing, replied the owl. Don't you see? You are not miserable because you are not a good you, but because you do not know who you are. Who told you you were meant to fly? I see the birds do it, and I can almost reach them. The slithering one told me I was close and only needed to try a little harder. Ah, 
said the wise owl. That old snake is jealous because he can neither fly nor run. But he knows if he gets you distracted trying to fly all day long, he will be able to sneak up on you and devour you. You, my dear rabbit, are meant to run. The rabbit thought about what the owl said. The more he thought, the more he realized the owl was right. The less the rabbit tried to fly, the more grateful he was for how high he could hop. Not only that, but he learned how fast he was on the ground. He could certainly outrun that serpent. And when the rabbit would run as he was meant to, he kept pace for all the other creatures in the forest to follow. You guys ever feel like the rabbit sometimes? Because I know I have. Trying so hard to be this thing that either I've set an expectation for or maybe others have imposed an expectation for. And I just can't do it. And I think that story echoes what we see at the very beginning of the true story of the whole world. A creature trying so hard to be something that it is not. And the destruction and the damage that that causes. Right? Did you hear echoes and glimpses of the true story in that? At the very beginning, there was a lie to the creature's humanity. You don't have to be this creature. You could be like the one who created, right? You don't have to listen and follow him. You can decide for yourself. And ever since then, there has been a story of humans trying to be something they are not. In Isaiah 40, uh, it says that God sits above the circle of the earth. Like when you look outside, when you guys look at the earth, I want you to see if you could see it as a circle. You can't do it, right? Not flat earth. I'm not trying to <laughs> bring up flat earth conspiracy. Astronauts have been able to see it eventually, but, but God, that's like his view all, all along. Is he sits above the circle of the earth in verse 22, Isaiah 40, and it says in all of its inhabitants, that's you and I, are like grasshoppers. Like little grasshoppers. And somewhere along the way, we got this idea that we could transform ourselves from grasshoppers to giants. Or even worse, from grasshoppers to gods. And what's amazing, though, about this story of this God who sits above on his throne, above the circle of the earth, looking down on these little grasshoppers, is the way that he moves toward us and the way that he lifts us up along with him. Because then you get the story when Israel is out in the wilderness and they're looking to this, this great city of Canaan where they're supposed to go in. It's the promised land flowing with milk and honey and all kinds of great stuff. And they go and they send spies to look and they see giants. And they say, we look like grasshoppers to them. Same words used in Isaiah 40. And then if you flip the page on that story, what you see is two young men, Joshua and Caleb, and they decide, you know what? It doesn't matter how big they are. It doesn't matter how many of them there are. If God is with us, we will be successful. There's giants. They feel like grasshoppers, but there's a God who's bigger than all of them. And God comes to the aid of his people. 
And this is the, the paradox of the whole story all the way through. It's this recognizing how small we are, recognizing rabbit that you can't fly, but when you recognize what you were actually created for, there's so much joy and peace and freedom in that. It's both a humbling experience to go, I can't be and do whatever I want, and I can't take the place of God as king over my life, but it's a freeing one too, because when you start actually living as what you were intended to be, what you were created for. Oh man, so much freedom, so much purpose, so much joy. And you look around and you see that that's true about most creatures in this world. I mean, the armadillo just does armadillo stuff, right? My dog just does dog stuff even when it drives me crazy sometimes. But as humans, we're constantly fighting against what we're supposed to be. Because we have this nature where, yes, we're creatures, but we're kind of this elevated creature. God set us apart from all the other creatures to be a representation of him, to show the rest of creation what the creator's like. And somewhere along the way, we got confused and thought, oh, that means we are like God. That means we have power and control and authority and autonomy. And so what this message this morning is, is guys, we need to know our place. We're grasshoppers before him. But he'll come and he'll lift us up before giants. It's the paradox we saw last week in our scripture in Ephesians 2, right? The paradox is, is recognizing also what you were when you rebelled against God. You were dead, ah, but now you've been made alive. You were children of wrath, but now you are sons and daughters of the king. And I'm convinced all of our, our lives following Jesus needs to revolve around holding these two things in tension. Why did Paul write in 2 Corinthians that we have been made new, or the original Greek language is actually you have been renewed because you messed it up the first time. You have been given a new nature because you destroyed your first nature. And so what we did is we destroyed our role as God's representatives on this planet and we took on something that wasn't meant to be ours. And that just incurred all kinds of destruction, damage, and death upon us and upon the rest of the creation. And so God comes and he renews. He restores. He remakes and you are now given a new identity because of what God has done through Jesus. In Matthew 28, when Jesus is going to be with the Father and he comes to his friends, his closest disciples, and he tells them, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. What does he say after that? Go and make disciples of all nations you guys are all like lipping it, you know it, you're mouthing it, but you don't want to say that. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? What he's saying is, I want you to live in your new identity, and I want you to invite others into that identity too. So two things we need to know, because we use these words a lot. Baptism, we think of dunking ourselves in, in a pool of water, right? 
and in the name of, like pray in the name of Jesus. And we somehow get this picture in our head that like it's just invoking the secret password that's gonna unlock some things for us. I said in the name of Jesus at the end of my prayer, so it should happen, right? And so let's, let's understand what that really means. Baptism is this word of immersion. And what they would say back then, if you were dyeing clothes, for example, in those days, if you dip a cloth into red dye, you have baptized it into red. What happens when you pull it out? What is it now? It's red. It's an immersion that takes on the identity of what it's been immersed in. So he's saying, you need to be immersed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in the name of is, again, identity language. If someone came in the name of the king, they have the full authority and representation of the king. When I was born, I was born in the name of Preby. That's my identity. I'm part of the Preby family. My sons were born in the name of Preby. They carry that name. That's part of their identity. Jesus is saying you get to be baptized, immersed fully, in the name of, given the identity of being in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to do now is watch a short little video of uh, a guy named Jeff with Soma Family Churches explaining that. More concisely and better than I could We're going to watch a short little video talking about what that means, our baptismal identity in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about what that identity looks like for us now after that. So let's watch. When Jesus commanded his followers to make disciples of all nations, he told them to baptize new believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This was Jesus' way of establishing these disciples in their new identity. He knew that we would live differently if we realized who we are because of God's work in Jesus Christ. God did the same thing with Abram. Do you remember how God changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of many nations? He gave him this name, not after he had Isaac, but before. This is how God works. God declares something to be so, and it is. This is what is going on in baptism. We are baptized in the name of the Father because we are the family of God. We are deeply loved by the Father who sent his Son to die for us so that we might become his children. And we're called to love others so that they might come to know the love of the Father as well. We're also baptized in the name of the Son because we are servants of the King, sent to serve the least of these as he served us. As a result, those we serve as the hands and feet of Jesus in the world experience the kingdom of God breaking in through everyday servants, showing them what the kingdom of God looks like. And we are baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit because we, just like Jesus was, are God's spirit-empowered missionaries sent to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the world so that others might come to know Jesus and in turn would also become disciples who make disciples of Jesus. This is how it works. Whatever God does to us, he also intends to do through us. So we talk a lot at Missio about four identities we have because of what God has done. We're a family of servant 
missionaries, learning to walk in the ways of Jesus. So we're family, we're servants, we're missionaries, and we're learners. Or another word for that is disciple. That's what we mean, right? We're learning to follow Jesus, we're his disciples. And so this comes directly from the identity of who God is, first and foremost, that God himself exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. And our identity comes flowing out of him, the one who created us. And so because God is our Father, we are now his children, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters with one another and even with Christ. Do you know Jesus said that? I call you brother. It's amazing that we now, because the king of all creation came in the form of a little baby and then grew and served person after person until ultimately he served the whole world through his death, because the king has served us, we are his servants who serve him and serve others as well. And because... Jesus did all that through the power of the Spirit and then said the Father will send to you that same Spirit to empower you. We are empowered as his missionaries or as we read in 2 Corinthians this morning, chapter five, another word for that is ambassadors sent with the message of reconciliation. We are sent on a mission with a message and we're constantly striving and learning how to do this as disciples of Jesus. That's what we're about. But I want us to see that tension I was talking about in each of these identities. Because the tension is, in, in our flesh and in a, the lie that we've once believed, is that we can not only be children, we could be the one in charge. We could be the patriarch, right? We're not the patriarch, but we are children. There's, there's a tension, there's a humility in that of going like, oh, okay, I'm not in charge of this family. But man, how beautiful it is I get to be a part of it. Bethany and I, um, have you guys ever heard of, what is it, Adventures in Odyssey? It's like an old radio show, stories and stuff. Um, there was one where like the kids got to be the, the parents for the day and the parents got to be the kids for the day and it was a real reversal. And I don't even remember like what their whole moral of it is. But think about the idea of that. Like m- many of you, if not all of you, have kids of your own. Like think about when they're little and they get to be the parent, like that one, the pressure that puts on them that is unnecessary, that would just crush them, right? To provide for the household, uh, to make sure things are at peace. Uh, but to think about how terribly wrong everything would go, how that household and family just fall apart, right? Like, we are not meant to be the one in control, but man, the freedom that our children have when they have good parents, when they get to go and, and find little play walkers and walk them into the service, right? Like just the joy of being a child, that's what we're invited into. That's the freedom when you release that control and go, you let, you let him be our dad. I get to be a child, a love child. Uh, the servant because of the son. You, you don't get to be the king. You don't get to be the one that God comes and serves. How often do we act that way even in our prayers? Like we, we, we cover it with nice Christianese language, but we are basically giving orders to God of how he should control and, and change our life and come and serve us, right? When he already has, he served us to the point of death. But he is king of kings, he is Lord of lords, and we are his servants. 
So there's a humility there, but there's a freedom. The freedom is when you remember that he poured himself out for you. And the freedom is you remember he did it for a joy that was awaiting him. As Hebrews says, the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That there is a joy in service, even here and now, but there's a joy awaiting us too in glory as we get to sit with Jesus in all of eternity. Or as missionaries, as sent ones, right? There's a humbling posture in that because, man, I got my schedule. I, I got my kids. I got my job. I got my stuff I got to do. And now, God, you want me to go out and, and do these things as well? Or you want me to, to enter into my workspace with this posture as a missionary? As, as an ambassador of reconciliation? You want me to go into my workspace and, and not just do my job, which is hard enough, Right? but I'm supposed to enter into that space as a representative of you. And so there's this posture of humility of dying to our flesh and what we want and stepping into the thing God has called us to, but the freedom of knowing you are only called to do that because the spirit is with you. When Jesus went away, he told them first, his disciples, first, not go out and preach to thousands of people, and make martyrs of yourselves, first, wait. Wait patiently for the gift the Father is sending you of the Holy Spirit. Same spirit that I answered in this world in, same spirit that we created this world in, same spirit that I performed all these miracles by, same spirit that I went to the cross in the power of, and same spirit that I rose out of that tomb by. It's coming upon you. Man, the freedom of knowing I don't have to do all these things as a missionary for God, I don't have to, my missional community doesn't have to check these things off our list to prove that we are living in God's mission. We're not doing work for God, remember? God is doing a work through us. As we read in Ephesians last week, he's prepared the good works beforehand so that we could walk in them. And so let's explore this identity in brief, each one, looking at a different part of scripture right now. Uh, just to remind us, this is something seen all throughout Scripture. These aren't just four ideas we made up um, that, like, oh, this is something we could brand our church on, right? But you could find all kinds of things you could say about the identity of humanity. We would say image bearers of God. We could say workers. We could say worshipers. There's, all those things are true. But these four things we saw kind of over and over throughout Scripture that encapsulate all of those ideas too. And so a couple of verses that we want to look at this morning. The first one is in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. All right, just so you know, that original word there, this is translated in a time that wasn't so PC, but the original word there actually means sons and daughters, children of God. That's all of us. But at that time, who inherited their father's stuff in that culture? Yeah. Firstborn son. We're all inheritors of God's splendor and majesty and glory. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Dad, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Are you hearing this and letting it just kind of wash over you? This is true of you. This is your identity. 
We are a family because we have been adopted into God's family. He is our father. We are sons and daughters. Uh, Let's keep going. Mark 10 says this, verses 43 through 45, but it shall not be so among you. Now he's, before this, he's talking about, he's saying all the Gentiles, which is the word for all those who aren't following, who aren't believers, they're living this way and they're quarreling. He says, but, verse 43, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How do you serve other people? How do you serve people at work who are driving you nuts? How do you serve your spouse when they aren't really serving you very well? How do you serve your kids when they're just screaming out, mine, mine, more, more? How do you serve other people who, it doesn't seem like they really deserve it, right? Will you do it as you look at the perfect picture of the servant, the king who came and gave everything for those who really did not deserve it at all. For those who were murdering him in the moment, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And you look at him as our picture of servanthood and you remember, I didn't deserve anything God has done for me. And God poured out his very life for my sake. Man. I guess Joe at the office, really. It's not that much to ask for me to go out of my way to love that person, right? We're servants because of the servant king. Let's keep going. Acts 1, verse 8. This is our identity as missionary sent ones, ambassadors with the message of reconciliation. How do we do it? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses, this is Jesus saying. We will be witnesses of Jesus, of the work he has done. He says, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's in, in exactly where you thought the kingdom of God would come and reign, for God's chosen people, Jerusalem, but also the surrounding cities, and you know what, also even Phoenix in 2019. The ends of the earth. That's where we're called and sent as missionaries. And so we have people who take that call and God has called them to go do that somewhere that to the ends of the earth, taken literally, right? The Lamkas are going to Ecuador. We have uh, the Mirheads in India. But it also means you and I in Judea and Samaria and, and in Jerusalem, like where we live in the surrounding cities, that we are sent with the power of the Holy Spirit as messengers, of reconciliation. And I just want to remind us of the first verse we read in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, remember, that's that immersion language. You're, you're dunked into a, a vat of red dye. You are now red. You are in Christ. You are now one with Christ. That's your identity. You're wrapped up in him. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. When you were trying to prove yourself by making a name for yourself, that's done. You don't have to live like that anymore. Behold, the new has come because of what Jesus has done. 
You are a new creation, Missio. You've been made a family of servant missionaries. And we're called to continue to follow Jesus, learning to walk in his ways daily. We do that together. You can't be a family in a silo. You know, there's lots of options today of listening to a way better sermon on a podcast than when you come here. Thanks for nodding to that, Steve. I appreciate that. There's way better, like you could find, this, the band sounded awesome this morning, so I'm not throwing shade, but you could always find a better something online, right? Like you can find a fantastic performance of music on a video. Why do we gather together? Because we are a family of God's people. We are a community of God's people. You can't just be family showing up for an hour or so once a week, right? We live life together. That's why. That's why we are constantly encouraging to live life in missional communities. It's not so we can check things off the list. It's not so that we can say, oh, oh, look, we have so many missional communities. Man, we're doing good. No, no, no. It's, this is who God has called us to be. This is our identity. So we live life together in missional communities throughout the week. In those missional communities, we learn to follow Jesus. We are formed in the truths of the gospel. We remind ourselves the power and the purpose of what God has done for us through Jesus so that we remember who we are now. And we're sent out as missionaries into our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our, even our own homes. We're sent out as a community of people so that people can see our love for one another and this unity that only happens in the bond of the spirit because of what God has done for us. Not just because, man, Steve's a really cool guy at work, so okay, I'll be a Christian too. Like, no, no, that's just a one-off. But I start to get to know all Steve's friends and I start to get to know this community of people. And it's weird because it seems like a lot of them don't have that much in common, but there's some type of bond there, a unity. There's something that has made them unique, that has made them family together. And that's attractive. And so I just want to encourage us again, like, don't look at a missional community life as a checkoff list. I got to go to MC now uh, on Wednesday night. I'm going to go do the dinner thing. No, 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 you are a missional community. That's your identity. That's what the church is globally throughout time and history, is God created and instituted a community of his people on mission, ambassadors of his messages of reconciliation. And so all we're doing is forming little pockets of that, little representations of that here throughout the West Valley. And you get to do that as brothers and sisters with one another, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. 